Our Father in heaven, this is, um, these are heavy words that we've read in Psalm 88, and this is a heavy topic, and when we come to speak of you, our words are always inadequate, but they can be true, because you give them to us. And I pray as we think about what you have given to us in your word, about this topic of suffering, that we would be able to think true things about it, and in doing so, may our hearts, may our affections, may our emotions be moved to follow, that we might trust in you and give everything over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please have a seat. So it was a warm summer's day as some friends spent some time together at Chesapeake Bay in Maryland in the United States of America. The uh, water was glistening in the sunlight as they splashed and swam and had a great time. But it was in fact the sunlight glinting off the surface of the water that was the lethal ingredient for the events that unfolded. Because one of that group looked at the lake and thought that they could dive in at a certain point. This girl was unable to see the bottom of it, and she launched herself in, only to be caught up short by the rocky floor at the bottom of the lake. She broke her neck and rose to the surface of the water, unable to turn herself over. Thankfully, her sister turned around just in time to see it and save her life from the water. Joni Erickson Tarder was 17 years old, when she became a quadriplegic in that accident. She was never able again to move her arms or her legs. In the two years that immediately followed in rehab, she went through enormous doubts about her Christian faith. She had loads of questions, huge bouts of depression, getting used to what would be a lifetime in a wheelchair. And over the years and many decades that followed, Joni had many complications, including chronic pain, and she even um, got cancer. Now, that tragic dive happened 52 years ago in July. And um, if, if previous experience from what Joni has said in various places is anything to go by, unless something else got in the way, Joni probably spent the 30th of July this year doing what she has done before, celebrating God, praising God for his goodness for all that he had done through many decades of the wheelchair. I wonder if that's where you thought this story was going to end up. Joni is living testament to the goodness of God. She's written many books, she speaks at conferences, she set up a charity that helps um, churches know how to think about people with disabilities um, from a whole range across the spectrum. In her life there have been many tears shed, many sleepless nights, many sort of brass heaven moments when it feels like her prayers were not getting through. But through it all, Joni has been fixated on the, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And she has not given up her hope in him. Now, she's never written off the possibility of healing. She always accepts prayers for healing when it comes. But actually, she believes that God has been healing something far more tragic in her than her quadriplegia. He has been making her more like Jesus. And for that, Joni says, she is delighted. Listen to what she says. The best thing about heaven will not be running or walking, touching or holding. The best thing about heaven 
will be a pure heart, no longer weighed down by sin and selfishness. And I can say that from this wheelchair. Glorified bodies? Hey, bring it on. But a pure, glorified heart? Well, that's the best. So Janie has realized her life is about bringing glory to God. Uh, And it's a real challenge for social media junkies. She's actually said she would rather talk ten times more about Jesus than she ever would about herself. Um, This is something she says about that. A day of ministry in Christ's kingdom is far better than a thousand days lived in pursuit of self-destructive pleasures. A day in this wheelchair serving him. A day representing him, though in the grip of this unrelenting pain, is better than a thousand self-fulfilled days lived pain-free and on my feet. Her attitude towards a disability is not to minimize her suffering, but to make God's love look triumphant in the face of catastrophic loss. She has a lovely line. She says, God makes beautiful music with broken instruments. And she says, the first thing I'm going to do on resurrected legs is drop on grateful knees. Why is it that I decided to talk about Joni Erickson Tarder at the start of this talk on how can a loving God allow suffering? Well, it's to say that despite tears, despite pain, despite unimaginable troubles, really, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that there is a joy that not even the most painful tears can wash away. Joni loved singing. She never was absent from pain, never absent from tears and heartache, but there is a joy that endures through them. In today's world, in the 21st century Britain particularly, we have um, what C.S. Lewis called a magical approach to the world. People often think that religion, they associate religion with magic and fairies and say, you know, that's religion and magic kind of go together. And actually what C.S. Lewis said is something different. He said, no, 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 the difference actually, um, so the, things, the thing that we do today that is the same as magic is science. It is technology, because what are we doing with science and technology? We're trying to bring the world under subjection to us. Whereas wisdom, philosophy, religion in the past has actually said the world is as it is. Will I conform to it? Will I change my attitude in light of what is happening around me? And we live in a a time and a place, under God's blessing, by God's grace, unparalleled in medical advances, We can hold suffering at bay in a way that no one has ever known in history before. And so for us, particularly in the last few hundred years in the West, we've really kind of said suffering is a real problem for belief in God. The very existence of God must be disproved by suffering. Well, that's just because of our privileged place in history. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you think, because of suffering around, I cannot believe in God. Maybe um, during this sermon there might be a few answers for you. But what I wanted to focus on as we're going through, really, is the way in which music and song is so evocative for us. I wanted to hear what songs are in the Bible that should perhaps push out our attitudes towards suffering that say, I simply cannot believe in God anymore, or I simply cannot think that God is good anymore. I simply cannot carry on as a Christian anymore in light of the face, in the, in the face of suffering. I want us to get some tunes, as it were, in our heads that will help us keep singing the Lord's song in a strange and painful land. So I'm going to be jumping around the book of Psalms. 
just to put a few flagposts in the ground, not to give some tight, philosophically argued answer to the problem of suffering, but to say, what songs can we be singing? What songs has God given us to sing that will allow us to face the reality of suffering and keep on holding on to the goodness of a loving God? And we're going to start. There are five um, points on your um, service uh, sheet, on the green sheet, um, and, and I'll sort of hopefully uh, reference the psalm that I'm looking at as we go through them. But they really do um, structure everything that we're going to be saying. And the first point then, as, as Christians, as, as a Christian, as I think about suffering, as we approach what the Bible says about suffering, there is a place that we must begin. And if we don't begin here, then we are going to get everything skewed. And it is this, when the tears began to fall. Turn back to Psalm 8 on page 546. So the huge promise of the gospel in, for instance, Isaiah 25, Revelation 21, is the promise of a world in which tears are no more. God will bring the world under subjection to him in a a very particular way, and it will be done in a way that means he can wipe away all tears, and they will never come back again. I once heard someone use the beautiful illustration, those of you who are parents will know what it's like when your child is crying and you wipe their tears away, you know that there is going to be a time when those tears come back. You are powerless to stop that happening. God says one day there will be a time and a place and a world in which he wipes away our tears and they will be gone for good. That is the promise of the gospel. But the thing is, tears actually are the proper response to the way the world is as as it is at the moment. But they have no place in the world as it should be. And this is our starting point. All sort of debate and wrangling about evolution um, to one side. If we do not remember that this world, this universe, is created and sustained by a perfect and good God, then we are not going to think about suffering properly. And we are made in his image. Maybe you heard that, verse 3 of Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. This is extraordinary. This is actually what we are made for. This is the entire purpose of human existence, to be crowned with glory and honour, made in the image of God. And yet, we all know what happened in Genesis 3. God said, obey me, honour me, be faithful to me, and you will live with me as your God forever, and you will enjoy the infinite riches of heaven, crowned with glory and honour. Yet we chose to be gods ourselves, and settled for the cheapest trinkets of hell. And God's justice meant a curse upon the world. In Genesis 3, that is what we read, a curse upon the serpent who deceived, upon Adam, upon Eve, upon this very planet. And as Genesis, the book of Genesis kind of goes through, you realize more and more how mankind, how humanity is descending into death, Being in the presence of God is life. Being banished from his presence under his curse means death. And the further and further away that humanity get, the worse that death becomes. 
The point is this, the world is broken because of us. The world is broken because of us. Now, I need to be very clear here. There's a way of saying this that says, therefore, if you have some suffering in your life, some really difficult thing going on in your life, then you must have some unconfessed sin. You are being directly punished for your sin. What I'm saying is, yes, the world is under God's curse because of humanity's sin, but it's very rare that actually we are in a place to point at someone or perhaps even at ourselves and say, this suffering is related to this sin. Um, just, just for your reference, in Luke 13, Jesus is talking about um, Pilate, who is sacrificing people along with their own religious sacrifices. And people say, what's going on here? And Jesus says, it's not because they sinned any worse than you that they're suffering in this way. Or he talks about the Tower of Siloam that fell and crushed and killed 18 people. And he said, again, they're not worse offenders than you are. Don't think that they're worse than you. But he says, of both of these things... But unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Suffering, Jesus is saying, isn't something to connect with one individual person's sin. But when we see suffering around us, we are meant to hear the message. Things are broken. Things are not as they should be. And humanity is the problem. Because we have sinned, we were not the man. We were not the people that Psalm 8 said we should be. On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, God says. And then the virus of decay entered into creation, entered into everything that is. I think you're looking at Romans 8 last week. The idea that at that moment then God plunged creation into a state of futility, a state of decay. And the world groans because it is not as it should be. And in fact, there are plenty of people who say they don't believe in God because of the suffering in this world. Like I said, maybe you're one of them. They say suffering is wrong. Suffering is a capital letters bad thing. A good God should not be able to stand suffering. So either there's no God or he's not good. Either way, I don't care, get stuffed. And I want to say, if that's how you feel, or you're speaking to someone who feels that way, there is something quite right about that sentiment. Because things are not as they should be. The Bible is not ashamed of suffering. If suffering were such a challenge to the existence of God, to the goodness of God, as the Bible proclaims it from every page, don't you think the Bible would have a little bit more of an attitude towards suffering like Basil Fawlty in Fawlty Towers? You know that scene when um, he's, you know, don't mention suffering. I mentioned it once, but I think I got away with it. The Bible doesn't have that attitude towards suffering. It doesn't try and cover it up and say, this is something that we need to be really quiet about because it undermines our, our confidence in God. No, the Bible is very clear. There is suffering in this fallen world. We tend to hold out suffering to God and say, look, there's a problem. Well, the Bible holds out suffering to us and says, yes, there really is. And when we realize how things should have been, when we read Psalm 8 and see this is how things should have been, then actually the indignation of the skeptic or the atheist isn't quite nearly enough. We, Christians of all people, should be at the forefront of saying social injustice The care for the weak and the vulnerable, safeguarding, all of these things should be the top of our priority because we know how precious humanity is and just how wrong things are. 
But whilst those programs are good, it's not the ultimate answer. For now, under this first point, I just want to say the response to suffering and death in this world must include lament. It must include crying out to God and saying, this is wrong, there must be another way. Jesus is the only perfect human who has ever lived. And yet, when he was faced with the death of Lazarus, with the death of his friends, he did not sort of do a sort of chin up and think of the resurrection, smile and keep on going. He wept. And in fact, the language that's used of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus is incredibly sort of visceral. His bowels were moved as he saw this scene of grievers and the death of his friend. This is not the way the world should be. Death and suffering are an intrusion. They are an enemy. This is wrong. So the kind of attitude towards suffering that says chin up and think of the resurrection is, well, quite frankly, it's British, but it's not biblical. And we shouldn't really have anything to do with it. Death and suffering do not belong in God's good world. They're a stain and a plague and an enemy. Romans 8, we groan. But groaning is a statement of protest. Groaning is a way of saying this is not the way things should be. We do not accept the world as this way of being. So that's the first point. But just to kind of stay in the darkness a little bit longer... Turn over again to Psalm 88, page 597. So Romans 8 says um, that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us or revealed in us on that last day. And there is a pretty insidious version of Christianity that says, therefore, when you become a Christian, actually things should be fine. Things should be okay. You shouldn't be suffering. You, you shouldn't be going through a hard time. Sometimes known as the prosperity gospel. The idea that you become a Christian, you become rich, or you become healthy, whatever it is. It, maybe it's a bit of an old-fashioned image now, but often it's some kind of shiny, shiny suit-wearing, um, sorry, often American on TV, sort of telling you to expect your best life now. You know, seven steps to a better you, whatever it is. I, I once heard this kind of toxic garbage um, shall I try the accent? Yeah, shall I try the accent? Let's try the accent. Okay. I've never had the Lord say, Son, I think that car is a little bit too nice. I've had vehicles and the Lord said, Would you please go park that at your house? Don't put that in front of my house. I don't want people to think I'm a poor God. Does that make you feel a bit sick? What, what kind of wretch teaches that as Christianity? That God wants you to be so rich you just have really nice cars. And, and you say, well, I go to St. John's down to Hill. I would never fall into such a way of false teaching. And I'm sure that you wouldn't. Tom would never let that happen. Sure. But the problem is there is still a seed of that that lives in us, isn't there? That thinks, yeah, I'm a Christian, so actually things should be all right. Things should be okay. Things should be going well for me. So I wonder if there's any, for instance, any awkwardness amongst us that we had Psalm 88 read tonight. Any awkwardness, any embarrassment that Psalm 88 is even in the Bible? Do you know there are 150 Psalms in the Psalter, that's the book of Psalms. 148 of them sort of end up resolving, even if it's with a note of resignation, but still hoping in God and saying, but I will wait. Psalm 13, which we had on the front of the, the service sheet, says, yeah, how long, O Lord? How long? All the th- things that are going, but, but I will wait. I will trust in your steadfast love. There are two Psalms in the Psalter that do not end on such a note of hope. Psalm 39 
and this one, which I think is the darkest psalm, Psalm 88. This is how Psalm 88 ends. From verse 13, I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They've engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. That's awkward, isn't it? That's, that's quite uncomfortable if you're thinking, well, as a Christian, this shouldn't be. But look at verse 1. O oh Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. This is not being prayed by someone who does not trust in the covenant God. Someone who is not within the covenant community. Someone who does not know God as their God. This is, in, through New Testament goggles, a Christian speaking. Don't be surprised when the tears keep falling. One of the titles of Jesus in scripture is Man of Sorrows. And the Man of Sorrows said if anyone wants to follow him, they must take up their cross and follow him and suffer. I actually was speaking about this a few weeks ago, suffering for his name, for being a Christian in this world. No, no servant is greater than his master. 1 Peter says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. You will suffer for being a Christian. But there are also other ways that we will keep suffering. So, for instance, we need to deny ourselves. We need to kill the sin in our lives. And for some people, actually, for everyone, sin is quite attractive. It has fleeting momentary pleasures involved in it. And killing something hurts. So if we're killing those things in our lives, which at least for a short period of time we deceive ourselves into thinking they bring us pleasure, we're going to go through pain as we do so. And for some people that might involve lifelong decisions about various things that mean suffering. That means something hard. Following Jesus is not an easy option. Don't be surprised when the tears keep falling. And of course, we still live in a world of darkness and tears, the weakness of this present time. The fact that this world is not as it one day will be means we will continue under a cloud. Our companions may be darkness for a long time yet, but here's the thing, that does not mean the gospel is not true. We are more than conquerors, it says at the end of Romans 8, but being more than conquerors doesn't mean avoiding suffering. Thirdly, God knows your tears and he never makes mistakes. It says um, in Psalm 56, you don't need to turn to that because I'm only going to mention this thing, God is so aware of our lives, so close to us, so intimate to us and with us in our suffering that he, he knows everything that's going on and he captures our tears and holds them in his bottle. But it's not as though he does it wringing his hands. Like, oh man, this is, oh, nothing I can do about this. This is just, I'll just pat you on the back and hope for the best. That's not the kind of God we've got. Now, the psalm I want to go to is, is a verse in Psalm 139, page 628. Now here's a song that you need to have resonating in you. This needs to be the one um, that evokes some pretty strong feelings. Verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Psalm 139, verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, there's mystery here. We can't press into it. But we have a God who declares the end from the beginning. 
Ultimately, the Bible says nothing that happens is outside God's will and good purposes. And this is the way that David puts it in this psalm. God has a purpose and a goal, and he is moving creation towards it, and that includes your life, and that includes mine. This isn't a reason for fear, it's a reason for comfort. This brings David so much comfort in this psalm. God did not kind of light uh, the touch paper of creation, it's often been put, and then just kind of let creation go. God is involved at each moment, sustaining it, ordering it, guiding it to its end. An illustration, maybe I've used it here before, I don't know, is, is a jigsaw puzzle. To move from writing to jigsaws, a jigsaw puzzle, the final finished piece is, a, well, <laughs> depends where you get your jigsaws from, I suppose, but you, it should be a beautiful picture. It should be a really nice picture. And yet, piece by piece, You've got no idea what each individual piece means, do you? If you just had the piece on its own, it would just be a mess of colour and weird lines. Well, that's kind of how we should be thinking about God having written all the days of our life and our experience of that. We get the pieces one piece at a time. If we could see the picture on the box, then we'd understand how each piece is fitting into it. But here's the thing, and this is kind of the big thing I want to take away tonight. It's staggeringly obvious, and yet we always forget it. Here we go, you ready? We're not God. We are not God. We get each piece, piece at a time. At the moment, we do not see the picture on the front of the box. But what we need to do is trust that the God who is God knows what he's doing. I mean, if you look at Psalm 139, the first six verses are about God's, what's known as God's omniscience, his all-knowingness. God knows everything about, he knows the words that you are going to speak before you speak them, before you've even thought them. He knows the thoughts in your head, he knows the way you're going in life. Verses 7 to 12, God's omnipresence, his all-presentness. He is everywhere, you can't escape from him. There is nowhere in the entire creation to which all of God is not present. What advice would you give that God? What correction would you give him in relation to the details of your life? And this is where the the kind of objection that says there are no good reasons for believing that there are, sorry, there are no good reasons for suffering that I can possibly think of, therefore God can't exist. Because I can't think of good reasons, God can't exist. Can you see the massive problem in that, that logic? It's assuming that the God who you're discounting his existence is as limited in his knowledge as you are. Well, I can't think of any good reasons, so obviously there aren't any. What a staggering thing to say. Tim Keller has a lovely line. He says, if you have a God who's big enough to be mad at for there being suffering and evil in this world, then you have a God who is big enough to have reasons for that evil and suffering to which you could not possibly have access Basically, he's saying if you think God is, is so powerful and wonderful that he is responsible for everything that goes on in creation, then you have a God who's so big and powerful and wonderful that he knows things you don't. And the fact that you can't see good reasons doesn't mean he doesn't have them. One of the most wonderful verses in Scripture, Romans 8.28 says, All things are worked together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There is good that God is working through everything in our lives, through the good things, through the hard things. And there are various ways that the Bible says that God uses those things. In Romans 5, it talks about suffering producing endurance and character and hope. 
In Hebrews 11, it says God disciplines his children. He trains them up. Like you go to a gym, you get stronger, perhaps in your faith, perhaps in being a son or a daughter of the living God, by going through things and challenging your belief, but then carrying on through them and keeping on trusting in God. And in fact, in in Romans 8, verse 29, it says that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. He's saying that all the good that is being worked out in our lives is making us more like Jesus. But the thing is, it may well be that we don't see that good in this life. That picture on the box is one that we will only see in the new creation. It says in 2 Corinthians 4 that light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. One day we will know why, perhaps not even all its fullness, but what we need to do is wait until then and trust that God never makes mistakes. So when medical reports come back that are not good, do I trust that God never makes mistakes? When financial things or job things or relationship things go down the toilet, do I trust that God never makes mistakes? When my wife and I saw our newborn daughter having seizures at a week old, we had to trust, does God never make mistakes? When it turned out she had some catastrophic genetic mutation that meant she spent a lot of her life in Great Ormond Street, did we trust that God never makes mistakes? When we cared for a profoundly disabled child and all of the impact that brought to our lives, does God never make mistakes? When we watched her die, when we saw her coffin being lowered into the ground, did we trust that God never makes mistakes? This is is real. I'm not saying this as someone who has read the Bible and teaches the Bible and therefore has no emotional connection with this. We wrestled with these questions ourselves and we didn't always come to the right answers. But here's the thing, the times when I say God did make a mistake is the time I'm saying I know more than God. And there comes a point when we have to say I am not God, but do I trust that the God who is in control is also good? That needs to be enough for us. And then really the two final points are are quick ones but still important ones. The tears of another bring about a world in which tears are no more. The start of Psalm 22, another wonderful song, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of dereliction, which actually was taken upon the lips of Jesus on the cross. When we have no idea how God is working out the things in our lives for good, we must look to the cross and say, I don't have the answers for me, but that is all the answer I need. You see, Psalm 88, that psalm of bleakness and despair, actually is a psalm that Jesus, in one sense, could pray. He was abandoned by his friends. He felt the wrath of God upon him, and the darkness closed in, and he was all alone. And yet he went through that in a way far worse than anyone who trusted in him will ever have to face, as he endured the punishment for our sins that should be ours. It was once said of Jesus, he who deserved heaven found hell opened up before him. And in Acts 2 and in Acts 4, we won't turn there now, but the message is very clear that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was both carried out by evil people with evil intent and yet 
simultaneously, mysteriously, was planned and purposed by God. How those two things hold together is always going to be ultimately a mystery for us, but the point is this, the most evil event in human history was planned and purposed by God for humanity's greatest good. And so in my life and in your life, if you cannot see the good that God is working, you're not God. And if you are doubting that God is loving, look to the cross. There is your proof that he works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So maybe a a question you'll ask me after this is, why is this thing happening to me? My answer will have to be, I don't know. I don't know. I can't give you an answer. And until I get to know you better, I wouldn't even talk about the kind of character building, whatever it is that some of the New Testament stuff is doing in your life. My first answer is, I don't know. But what I do know is that you cannot look at the cross and conclude anything other than that God loves you. And finally, weeping lasts for the night. Joy comes with the morning. A beautiful line from Psalm 30, that the night may in fact feel long, and yet in Christ we have resurrection hope. The one who died our death also destroyed the grave and rose again, and so one day we will too. And it may be that in the night of this weak world under God's curse, our weeping simply will not stop. But the morning is coming, and with the morning comes joy. Throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he touched people, he healed people, he delivered people. He brought signs and symbols and foretastes of that new creation everywhere he went, everyone he touched. And one day it will be brought in all its fullness. We need to remember that in Christ we have a saviour who has walked through the deepest caves of death and come out the other side and he will not abandon us in the valley. When Paul was suffering physical pain, he pleaded with the Lord, take it away from me. And this is the answer he got from Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You may have come here full of questions, and only God knows the answers. But in Jesus, you have the yes and amen to all God's promises, and therefore in Jesus, you have the answer to this question. How can a loving God allow suffering The key thing is, in suffering, look at the cross and know beyond a doubt that God is loving. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have barely begun to scratch the surface of this tonight, but I pray that these songs that you have given us would stick in us, help us to find in them and in singing them and in praying them hope in the midst of suffering and a strengthening of our faith in your Son, the risen and victorious Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.